Uh, why don't you stand to your feet, and I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. This just gives us an idea. We talked about what it means to be a disciple, how the apostle Paul discipled. We talked last week about Jesus' model for discipleship. But look at what the apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.2. I'm reading out of the Passion Translation, just one single verse. It says, and all that you have learned from me, he's speaking to Timothy, his spiritual son, confirmed by the integrity of my life, I like that, deposit these things into faithful leaders who are competent to teach the congregations the same revelation. Essentially what he's saying is, I have something that I have given you, Timothy. That's the second generation. You teach other leaders who will be able to pour into even more people, the congregation. He's talking about essentially four generations of this blessing, this anointing, this discipleship being passed on. Now, I want you to read, we're going to read one other verse together and, and we'll just stay there. Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16. Go back to the, the gospel of Matthew and, and most of what I share today is going to come out of this, this chapter, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples and he says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, the Amplified adds, as my disciples. Everyone say, as my disciples. If anyone desires to come after me as my disciples, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Well, let's ask the Lord's hand over this time as we uh, open his word together. Amen. Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we open your word. We ask you to speak to us and change us, mighty God. And Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to move and minister. I, I ask, Lord, that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us, that you would correct us, that you would do what only you can do through your word. Lord, I ask that you would anoint me that under your authority and under your unction, I would preach as I ought to. And Lord, I ask you to anoint every listener within the sound of my voice, those who are watching online, those who are here uh, in this place today, Lord, uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, a heart to perceive what it is you're speaking today. We ask for a liberty in the word in Jesus' name. And everybody say, amen, amen. Well, you may be seated. Hallelujah. I, can I just say, even before I really dig into this word, uh, when we sing that song, This Is a Move, how many of you sense that God is doing something, you know, just really unique in the church in this season? I'm on Thursday night, we had as many people sitting in this sanctuary, maybe more than are sitting in here right now. Uh, just absolutely incredible. And you know what's stunning to me is there's, there's two reasons that I'm hearing that people are coming to our church is first of all, is because we care about legacy. We care about children. We care about youth. And did you know that today we are the only church in West Maui that has a youth program? Did you know that? And so pray for Minister Rylan and Leah. Pray for Kaleo. We're going to be uh, starting a, a Sunday morning uh, offering for our youth as well. And I want you to pray for our youth and our children's ministry uh, because other churches just simply are not doing. And so we've had a number of families come on Thursday night because we're the only ones who do youth. 
Uh, the other thing that I'm hearing, and I'm just so delighted in this, is people are showing up to our church both on Sunday and Thursday because we're a supernatural church. They love that they come into this place and healing is moving, that prophecy is flowing. And uh, I'll just tell you, will you join me in prayer and just saying, Lord, do more things supernatural. Pour out your presence. We, I, I just... My wife and I were talking, and, and we were driving over here this morning, and there's a pastor we love, and they were talking about how they were, they were hosting guest ministries in the house, and uh, uh, it, was a, it was a multi-church all coming together, and the pastor's wife was like, you know, boy, what if some, what if some weird people show up to our church? What if people start acting strange and, and this and that, and, and the pastor responded, he's like, you know, isn't that what we're supposed to be about. Don't we want the Holy Spirit to show up and do what he does? And Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, but my wife, as she's re- reciting this all to me, telling me what she heard in this message, she, she's like, you know, I don't struggle with that at all. Like, I, I actually like when weird stuff starts happening. I, I, I don't know if you guys are like that at all. I mean, just, but you know what I've discovered? It's mostly only religious people that kind of get their, their feathers ruffled when things start happening. I, I've noticed that you, you worry about the visitor and what are they going to think when this guy is shaking? What are they going to think when somebody says, thus saith the Lord? What are they going to think if somebody falls on the ground or starts crying in the presence of God? What I've noticed is people outside the church don't very much care about those kinds of things. And, uh, and I don't know why it is. You, you hear me make the joke. It's, it, stirs, it stirs faith. And I'm telling you, it's like when we were in the world, you'd go to a party and you'd see people stumbling around and slurring their speech and falling on the ground, and you wouldn't want to run out of the place. You'd be thinking, I want what they got, Right? And the worldly says, now, we're not like that anymore, hallelujah. But, but when I come into the house of God and I see somebody getting rocked by the presence and power of God, my thought is, I want what they got. You know, what's on their life? And so let's, let's be unashamed. Praise God. I don't know. That doesn't have anything to do with my message, but I just encourage you. But hallelujah. Last week, we talked about, we talked about how we can make disciples. You know, I, I'm a believer in evangelism. I love crusade ministry, but I did some math. I really encourage you, if you did not hear last week's message, go online, check that thing out. I shared even how statistically, if we, if we had guys like Reinhard Bonnke, who just went to be with the Lord, nearly 80 years old, led 79 million people to Jesus, how about that? That's about a million a year. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of testimony? Wouldn't you? What do you think he's going to hear standing before the pearly gates? Enter in good and faithful, very faithful servant. He did a lot with what the Lord gave him. But what, what stunned me is to consider, do you know, I did the math on this, it would take 96 Reinhard Bonkies, 80 years Every year, doing what Bonky did, it would take 96 Bonkies in a, 80 years in a row to fulfill the Great Commission. That's a long time. And Reinhard Bonkey's a one-of-a-kind man. You understand what I'm saying? I don't know if we got any Bonkies in the house today, but here's what. Here, let me give you a different scenario. Did you know that if every believer who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if every believer alive today made four disciples, the Great Commission would be fulfilled. 
Do you hear the difference in that? How many of you feel like, man, maybe over the course of a year, I think I could get four people into a life group. I think I could get four people to a church service where they could pray a prayer. I could lead somebody. I could lead four people to the Lord over the course. I mean, how many of you think that's a realistic goal? I mean, anybody with me? And so I look at this and, man, four disciples. And we talked about how Jesus, this is why he had large meetings, but his emphasis was on making disciples. Everyone say disciples. And so we, we did the math this last week, and I won't break it all down for you, but it's really amazing when you look at how uh, the Jewish rabbis, their form of discipleship, I explained the whole process this last week, how Jesus started with 12, and those 12 became 70, we see in Luke 10.1. Those 70 disciples became 500, actually 504 disciples in 1 Corinthians 15.6. Those 500 became 3,000, we see on in Acts chapter 2. And then those 3,000 became 20,000 in Acts 4. four. And you see how this thing multiplies as people began to embrace discipleship. Everyone say discipleship. This is how I want our church to be. I feel like this is the emphasis of the year. But, uh, but what, what happened here is this, this passage in Matthew 16, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Jesus begins to have a very difficult conversation with his disciples. Uh, this is the first time that he's really lining out for them how he is going to suffer how he's going to die, and then he's going to be resurrected. This is following, if you read earlier in Matthew 16, you'll notice this is the portion of Scripture where Jesus asks his disciples, what are people saying about me? Who do men say that I am? And, well, some say you're a great teacher. Some say you're a prophet. Some say Elijah or John the Baptist. And he asks him, but who do you guys think that I am? You've been around me for a little while now. Who do you say that I am? And Peter in this moment of great revelation, he says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Powerful statement, powerful revelation, and they now have come to this place of understanding you truly are God in the flesh, the Savior, the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And the, the passage continues. We, I'm going to pick it up just a little earlier than what we read together in verse 16. Look at verse 16, uh, verse 21, rather, of Matthew 16. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised from the dead on the third day. And you just imagine, pause there for a minute, the reaction of the disciples here. They've just come to this revelation that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, an interesting study that you may do sometime on your own is look at what the disciples called Jesus throughout the Gospels. They begin by acknowledging him as a man, and then eventually they grow into acknowledging him as their rabbi, as their teacher, and then he's prophet. And the thing continues to build and build as their understanding of Jesus continues to grow. And by this point in time, they're calling Jesus Lord. They understand that he is the Savior and the Messiah. And you can just imagine, I mean, they've just had this moment where they realize who Jesus is, and then Jesus begins to tell them, now listen, boys, I'm going to go. 
and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. He also tells them he's going to be resurrected, but it seems like they miss that part of the message. And he says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And then Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Everyone say, Get behind me, Satan. That's not a good thing. If you, if you got some friend or your spouse is saying something that's wrong, this is not a good, good strategy to neutralize the situation. I'll just tell you that. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Uh, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, I've heard people teach on this, but you want to know why? what I think is very significant about this and why Jesus? I mean, here it is, man. Peter has just made the greatest statement of faith in the New Testament. And you realize that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus hadn't told anybody that flat out, not in so many words. And nobody else had come to that conclusion. Uh, again, not, not with such clarity, but Peter makes the greatest statement of faith that has been given yet in the New Testament. And yet within, it seems like, just a couple moments, he's getting rebuked by Jesus being called Satan to his face. What in the world is happening? This is the reason that I think Jesus responded so strongly to that. Do you remember in Luke chap in Matthew chapter four, rather? In Matthew chapter four, we see this episode where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. You guys remember this? And there was a point in time, it was the last temptation that Jesus received, where Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain, and the Bible says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he said, Jesus, if you would just bow to me, if you would just take a knee, I will give you all of these kingdoms. Now, that's not just some flippant kind of temptation you understand. What strikes me, why did Jesus come to the earth? He came on a rescue mission. The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? Mankind was lost. This earth was lost. The kingdom of God on the earth was lost. And what Jesus came was to redeem not only mankind, but even to redeem the world. And so here Satan shows him, here's all of the kingdoms and all of the people and all of the world. They all belong to me, Jesus. But if you would just bow your knee, I will give you everything that you came here to do. You know what he's doing? He's providing Jesus and out. You can accomplish your task with just a little compromise, just take a little knee here, and Jesus, we see, we know, we know how that story ended. Jesus harshly rebuked Satan. He did not yield to that temptation, but now, fast forward a couple years, right as Jesus is beginning to look towards the cross and reveal to his disciples what he's going to do, I am going to suffer, I am going to die. And Peter pulls Jesus aside, and the words of Satan begin to leave his mouth. Jesus, there's another way. There's got to be something else that you can do. You don't need to die in order to see the kingdom come. And I just, I, I have this, this idea, and this is just, this is my personal belief. I, I believe that Jesus in that moment was so harsh because he knew what a real temptation that was. But I tell you, Jesus dealt. This is, we we got to get this serious with the devil sometimes, you understand. 
We need to say, get behind me, Satan. And that's exactly what the apostle, that's what Jesus did to Peter. I don't think he was trying to be mean to him, but, but he knew, he knew that this was a serious temptation and he was not about to yield to that thing. And so Jesus, look at this, verse 24, it continues. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, and some of your translations will say to be my disciple. If you want to be a disciple of my, how many of you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Okay, that's the topic of our, our message today, how to be a disciple. Everyone say, be a disciple. This is what Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will record, uh, reward each of them according to his work. You see, Jesus, he taught them a lot. He preached to them. He demonstrated things. He empowered them to work miracles and, and preach and do all of that. But when it gets right down to it, he's like, guys, if you really want to be a disciple of mine, then this is what you do. And he begins to preach to them a three-point message that I'm going to preach to you today. And the first thing that he says is we must embrace self Denial. Everybody say self-denial. I know this isn't real excited. How many of you get excited about denying yourself? Okay, nobody does. This is like the opposite of the narrative of our day, right? People, people pursue Jesus because they think Jesus might make their dreams and desires come true. Like, Jesus, you live for my vision. Jesus, you're a means to my ends, what I want to happen in my life. Jesus, why don't you just be a genie in my life who make my wishes and my desires come true? That's how many are treating uh, the Lord today. But the problem is that outside of Jesus Christ, our dreams, our desires, our self-pursuits will ultimately destroy us. How many of you before Jesus Christ, you began to see that? I mean, that's when I began to make my turn to the Lord is I I realized that my pursuit of happiness through substance abuse, through music, through popularity, through relationships, I realized that my own efforts were ultimately leading into self-destruction. And so I don't know about you, but when I came to Jesus, there were a lot of selfish desires that needed to die, and I needed to bend my will to the will of Jesus. Now, you understand, hear me on this, because I talk about self-denial. This can get heavy. But I want you to understand, I, I don't believe all desires are bad. In fact, I wrote a book called God's Will about how one of the primary ways the Lord speaks to us is through desires. He'll put a a desire in your heart to do something. Uh, But the problem is if your heart has not yet been yielded to Jesus, if you've not yet learned to submit your life to Jesus, uh, your heart still operates in wickedness. It's still deceitful, Jeremiah 17 says. And so we we need to have a redeemed heart. We need to have redeemed desires. Amen? Now look, so I like the way that, that the passion reads in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. We read this together at the beginning. He says, Timothy, what you heard me teach, 
confirmed by the integrity of my life. You know what Paul is saying? He's like, Timothy, I didn't just teach you some things and I'm living a different way. I actually taught you some things and I lived this thing out. You understand that part of self-denial is a putting down of our fleshly desires. It's a putting down of, of pride. It's saying no to sinful desire. It's saying, Jesus, come, live your life through me. Every one of us. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must come to this place of self-denial that we understand not all the thoughts that come into my brain are brilliant. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Not everything that I want to do in my life is helpful or productive or glorifying to God. I need to put down myself. I need to put down my flesh, my pride, my desire, my sinful desire, and we need to ask the Lord. And that takes humility. It takes humility there to, to understand I don't have it all figured out, that there's somebody more qualified, there's somebody more intelligent, there's somebody more anointed than I am. Church, this is a key to discipleship. You want to know, when I, uh, uh, there was a young man that we worked closely to, and I knew, I, I knew from the first time that I met him that this guy was, unless some things changed about his life, he was going to struggle with his walk with God. And the reason that I knew this is that in, in the ministry that he was involved with, he was the most brilliant one there. All of his instructors, all of his teachers, they don't know what they're talking about. I know the Bible better than these guys. He goes to Bible school, and he's more brilliant, and he's got more understanding than all of the instructors. He can't find a pastor to submit to because he's of more maturity and greater intelligence than all of these pastors. And I knew, hearing from this guy, this guy's going to self-destruct. This guy is going to have struggles because, first of all, he's not going to find anybody he can walk and do life with. But secondly, if he can't learn to accept the fact you're not as brilliant as you think you are, bro, to deny yourself, to humble yourself and say, you know what, there's some other people out there that got some things figured out that I do not. This is a key to discipleship. We must first deny ourselves. What drew me, you want to know, when I got right with God, Many of you have heard me tell the story. I, I went to Christ for the Nations because I was, I mean, I had a DUI. I was kicked out of school. I had all these things. that were, You know, my life was self-destructing. And somebody told me, Pastor, or they, oh, I wasn't Pastor. They said, Jacob, you go and uh, just try. Give God a try at Christ for the Nations. And so I went to try God at Christ for the Nations. I figured I was going to do one semester. I was going to get my Jesus fixed, and then I was going to go back to what I wanted to do, right? But what happened is God began to do such a deep work in me. I began to contemplate, boy, maybe there's more to this than just me giving a semester and, uh, you know, just seeing what the Lord will do. So I began my second semester at Christ for the Nations, and very early on in that semester is actually the time that I met Leah. And uh, we, best thing that ever happened to me outside of Jesus, praise God. And, uh, but what happened is I, I began to fast. I met Leah, and, and, and you guys wouldn't know it looking at me today, but I was real skinny when Leah first met me because I was in the middle of a fast. I was on a water fast for 21 days, and then I fasted another uh, all the way through 40 days, uh, other forms of fasting. I was, I was skinny. I would have died if I would have continued with the total fast. But I, uh, I did 21 days. You want to know a great form of self-denial? Fasting. 
is one of the base ways that you could say, I'm not going to serve the God of my belly, right? I'm not going to serve the God. I'm saying my spiritual walk, my walk with the Lord is more important. But I remember it was during that season that I first saw and met Steve Hill. And I remember this guy, I remember seeing the poster of him as they were advertising a series of revival meetings. John Kilpatrick came, Claudio Frazen, a number of guys from the Argentine Revival, Steve Hill, Cindy Jacobs. I mean, they had this lineup of these great revivalists. And I'll never forget when Steve Hill, I'd never heard anybody preach that way. I'd never seen anybody uh, move in ministry that way, the way that God, the power of God just began to move in the altars and so many testimonies began to fall. I mean, when he gave an altar call, and this is at a Bible school, mind you, when he gave an altar call, I remember 90% of the audience responding to the salvation call in Bible school. I mean, are you getting this? But there was such a conviction as this man of God would preach the word that everybody's just like, I got junk in my life. I need to get right with Jesus, even in Bible school. I mean, these are like pastors and leaders. And so they come. And I, I remember sitting. In fact, I, no, I wasn't sitting. You ask my wife. I was a wild man during this time because I had been fasting and praying for all of these days. And what I would do, and when I felt like they were about to open up the altars for prayer, I think that it's coming. I would, I'd begin to stand up. Like I'd be sitting, you know, back four or five rows, you know, back where like Kavehi is maybe. And, and I would be, I could tell he's coming in for a landing. It might be another 20 minutes. What I, what I would do is I would stand up and I would just kind of creep out into the aisle. And every, every few minutes or so, I'd like move up one aisle and then I move up another aisle because I wanted to be, when that altar opened and the floodgates of heaven were, I wanted to be right here. I wanted to be front and center, right in front of the pulpit. And, and that's what I did every single night. And that's, uh, I mean, I was just, I was hungry. You want to know why? Because I recognize I lack a lot in my life. But there are people who are more anointed than me. There are people who can preach and who can pray and who can heal and who can deliver in a way that I have never even imagined that I could. And I wanted that. In fact, I never forget one night. I don't think I've ever shared this story here. But I, uh, what, there was one night, in fact, John Kilpatrick was preaching. He was the pastor of the Brownsville Revival. And I'll never forget, he opens up the altars for prayer, and, uh, and he's just standing up on stage. And, and as he begins to pray, I mean, he's doing like, if you've ever hear, heard Kilpatrick, he does like this Indian kind of wailing uh, tongues thing. I don't even know how to describe it. But as he began to pray, I tell you, the atmosphere shifted in that place. I felt like the river of God began flowing, I mean, electric in the atmosphere. So I'm down there in the altars, and then something happened that made me so, so mad. Cindy Jacobs, prophet, comes over to Kilpatrick and begins to prophesy over him. Then lays hands on him, and Kilpatrick, bam, goes out under the power of God, and he's just there for like 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, that guy's supposed to lay hands on me. You know, what are you doing? I was, I was upset. Like, what is Cindy doing? I wanted somebody to lay hands on me. And so I wanted that impartation. I want to be able to pray and shift atmospheres and all that. And so I remember I, after some time, some ushers came, and they actually picked up Brother Kilpatrick, and they put him up on a chair right on stage. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to go right on stage. I mean, there's thousands of people here. There's like 3,000 people there. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go right up on stage where all of these pastors and revivalists and bigwigs are, and I'm going to go ask him to lay hands on me right now. And so I, I start going up there, 
And there's Jacob Kapu, security ministry, standing right there. Nope. Uh, sorry, only pastors on stage, only invited guests on stage. Now, I could have got offended and I could have got upset, but I knew the physical layout of Christ for the nations. I knew there was a back door to get up on that stage. This is a true story. So you know what I did? I go out the back door of the auditorium and I walk all the way around. There's this side little hallway that goes out the back. No, if, unless you were a student, unless you knew where the prayer room was, nobody knew where that thing was. So I go in there and, uh, and I go back and I go through the green room and then I come out on the stage, the back way. <laughs> and I go, and, uh, and this is true, man. I, I go and I I came around to the front where Brother Kilpatrick was sitting down, and this is what I did. I went, I went up to him, and I knelt before him, and I said, Brother, Brother Kilpatrick, I want what's on your life. I want God to use me in revival the same way that he's used you to host revival. Would you pray for me that God would put the same thing in me? And that night, there was me and there was another, there were two pastors who had come from like the Ukraine or something like that. We were the only three that night out of thousands who received prayer. But when Kilpatrick laid hands on me, he said, God, would you give him everything that you've given me? Tear down dividing walls that are on the inside of him and pour out the same anointing that is on my life. And that's a big prayer. But you know why? You know why I pursued that? It's because I recognized there was something on that man of God that I did not have. There's something. And I still try and remain in that posture. Jesus said, listen, son, daughter, if you want to be a disciple of mine, you have to deny yourself. You don't have this all figured out. You're not living perfect yet. You're not the all-anointed one. You don't intercede the way that you ought to. You need to deny yourself and come after me. Amen? Here's the second thing. I spent too much time on that. Number two, number two, he said, deny yourself and take up your cross. This is a, this is a simple message, but this is Discipleship 101, church. If you want to get serious with Jesus, we need to consider, am I, am I willing to deny myself and take up my cross? You know what that means? It means that you're willing to give anything. It means that I'll do anything for you, Jesus. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus said, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Maybe you've heard the testimony. I remember reading how the great Saint John Wesley came to be saved. John Wesley actually had a desire for ministry for his entire life, but it wasn't until he got around the Moravians. He was actually sailing here to the U.S., and there were massive storms that began to rage all around. And he noticed that him and almost everybody else on this boat was panicking because they were so sure that they were going to die. Yet the Moravians on the boat, Moravians were a, a group of believers, these guys would pray and worship and seek the face of God even in the midst of these storms. And it was in that time that, that John Wesley realized, I don't know Jesus the way that I think I do. And he began to get around and go to these prayer meetings and be discipled by these Moravians. And boy, it put a fire on the inside of him. In fact, some of the first groups of missionaries that were sent out of John Wesley's church, the Methodist church, uh, they, they were groups of, of missionaries that were called one-way missionaries. Everybody say one-way missionary. Well, what in the world is that? Well, in the early 1800s, what these guys would do is they would buy a one-way boat ticket. 
And they would pack up all of their belongings to go to be a witness, to to be a disciple maker wherever the Lord was asking them to. They'd buy a one-way boat ticket and they would pack all of their belongings, not in a suitcase. This is true. They would pack their belongings in a coffin because they knew they were never returning home. They knew they were not coming home. One of these missionaries, a man of God by the name of A.W. Milline, he was a one-way missionary. He set sail for New Hebrides in the South Pacific, and he was aware that there were headhunters that had been that had martyred every other missionary who had gone into New Hebrides. Every missionary who had gone before had been killed for the cause of Christ. But he said that he did not fear for his life as he was sailing there because he had already died to himself. Packed his belongings in a coffin. He sails there. He lived there for 35 years among the tribe. And when he died, he was buried in the coffin that he had packed his life in 35 years earlier. And on his tombstone today, it reads, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there is no darkness. That story. Another missionary came out of John Wesley's church. John Calvert was committed to reach the indigenous peoples of the Fiji Islands. On the voyage, the captain repeatedly encouraged him and his other sailors, saying, you will lose your lives and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. But Calvert replied, we died before we came here. You want to talk about the way these guys, I tell you what, man, that just makes me feel like, I don't know, worthless. I don't know. It's just like, have I died? Have I taken up my cross? You understand, that's what it, that's what it means to take up our cross. Jesus, I, I will do whatever you ask me to do. I will lay down my life if that is what you ask of me. A.W. Tozer, he said, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul. We wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Wow. My goodness. One thing. One thing I want you to remember, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up that cross, take up this cross. It's heavy and it's a burden, but don't forget his next words. And I want to encourage, I know this can get heavy on us, but I want you to remember the next words of Jesus because then he turns right around and he says, if you desire to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life, if you take up this cross, if you deny yourself, you're going to find life. Church, I'm telling you, the life that I live today, the wife that I have, my children, I mean, we live on Maui, for God's sake. You look at the life. I could not have made up a better life for myself than what Jesus has given me. And this is even forgetting what we have ahead of us. I mean, however many years the Lord has us here, it's an honor to be used by God. But then we get heaven after all of this. I mean, think about this. Here we are. We're rotten heathens. 
Jesus saves us. He does everything. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us gifts. He gives us opportunity. And then we die and we go to heaven. And then he gives us a reward for all the things he did for us. How does that make sense? Like, Jesus, I don't deserve a reward. You did everything, but wow. We lose our life. Jesus, whatever you ask of me, I will do. And here's the last thing. Minister Ryland, will you come? You play. Join me on stage here. He said, follow me. Follow me. What were the three ones? It's just right out of the scripture. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, what do we need to do first? Do we need to deny ourselves? Second, take up our cross. And third is what? Follow me. That means that we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to imitate Jesus. We're going to be a student of Christ. And you know, this is why, this is why I've always surrounded myself with, with other people. We're called not only to make disciples, but we're also called to be disciples. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. But I, this is just so practical. But I, I really want to challenge you to examine your life. Are you being discipled? Do you have people that are speaking into your life? Do you have anybody who can say, who can call you Satan to your face? I mean, I mean, really, we need people like that in our lives. You're doing wrong. What are you thinking? We need people like that. And I have, I have many mentors in my life, and I, I will always have mentors uh, because, you know what, I, I understand. I learned a long time ago. In fact, I, there was a couple uh, they were with us last Sunday, and they've been with us the last two Thursdays. But he came up to me just in tears, and he's like, brother, there's such a great anointing on your life. You've got, you know, you're, you're so this and that, you know, really just like, you know, stroking my ego, right? And I, and I stopped him, and I said, man, I, I really appreciate, I really appreciate that. That means a lot. But I told him, do you, you want to know why, as a 33-year-old, God has used me to do the things that he has done. Most of it comes down to one thing. I have always sought out mentors in my life. I have always sought out people who were wiser and stronger and more anointed than me. And as I serve them, God has elevated me. As I serve them, I tell you, if you're not serving anybody who's better than you, you ask my wife. My wife and I, we had pastored for seven years in Illinois. And we knew that it was kind of a transitionary time. And we flew down to Dallas, and we were sitting in Steve Hill's driveway. And I, I told my wife, and you can ask her, I, I didn't sugarcoat this, I didn't say this figuratively, but I said, Leah, if Pastor Steve tells us that for this next season, he wants us to travel with him, we pay our own expenses, I carry his bag into his meetings, and I shine his shoes in between services, that's what we're going to do. And I meant it with everything. Because I understand when you serve and when you submit yourselves to another person that God has put in your life, I, I tell you, the benefits of that, what can be poured into your life, the way that God can use you and elevate you and expand you is, is beyond anything you could do on your own. I mean, I could... I, I could Seek the Lord, just me and Jesus. And you know what? I might, I might get to where I am by the time I'm 70. Or I can get around people that God has graciously placed in my life and say, teach me. 
I want you, this is, here's, here's practical. Here's your homework for this week, okay? I want you to make a list of areas that you want to grow in. I need to grow in prayer. I want to be a better father. I want to grow in the way I handle my finances. I want to get physically fit, right? I'll tell you, I got inspired. We were spear diving with my friend Ryan here yesterday. And uh, I won't get graphic with you, but he takes off his shirt. And I'm like, bro, you could work it out. And, you know, here's the thought that popped into my brain. My shoulders used to be bigger than that. But they're not today. I tell you, I just like I'm, I'm losing all shape. Uh, I'm just like an amoeba is what, what I am turning into. But, but you know what happens when you get around people like this? You know what an amoeba is? Just look it up. You'll see. Uh, it's a type of cell. It's a, it's a formless cell, okay? Uh, anyway, that's what I'm turning into. I saw this. I saw a true statistic. You hear people say, you know, uh, show me your five clo- You'll be the average of your five closest friends, and there's a number of statements like that, and I agree with that. Are you surrounding yourself with people that will draw you to the next level? But there was another thing that I saw. Now, this was very stunning. Did you know? That if your closest friend, not your closest five, but your closest one friend, if your closest friend is a smoker, you're 61% more likely to begin smoking. Sometimes one person that you surround yourself with will influence you one way or another. Did you know that if your closest friend is obese, you have almost a 30% chance that you will become more obese? I've seen this work in reverse as well. You remember, I miss Guyton. Guyton, if you're watching online, you need to move back to Maui. You want to know why? Guyton was physically fit, and Guyton would show up at early morning prayer three times a week and make me run with him. I need people like that in my life. The fact that I'm becoming more amoeba is evidence I don't have guys like Guyton in my life. And that's a foolish example, you know, it's a goofy example, but it's true, man. I, that is really something that I want to grow in. I want to be a steward of the body and the life and my health that God has given me. And so that's, that's one thing. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I need to seek out. In fact, I asked Ryan, you know, man, what, what have you been doing? He's got a trainer in his life. You know what that is? You can call it a mentor. You can call it a discipler. You know, he's got someone who's discipling him in the realm of his physical health. And it shows. We all need people like that. And I'll tell you, they don't have to be all-inclusive, all right? Uh, Because I'm not going to go, you know, Dave Ramsey, I would consider. I seek his counsel on finance stuff, right? But I'm not going to go to Dave Ramsey for tips on spiritual warfare, right? You you guys hearing me? It don't have to be an all-inclusive thing, but it's like, uh, you know, this guy's a great preacher, but I don't want his marriage. But this guy's got a great marriage, and so I'm going to ask them about you hearing what I'm saying? And so you seek out these different things, okay? All right, well, that's, that's enough of that. Why don't we stand? And this is what we're going to do. Oh, man, I've got so much more, but we've got something important that we're going to close out our service with. Um, you want to be a disciple of Jesus? We're going to take up our cross. We're going to deny ourselves. We're going to take up our cross, and we're going to follow. We're going to follow Jesus. Now, this is what I want to do. I, I, need, I need three people to help me. Uh, Seth and Mark and uh, Kaleo, would you come? I want you guys each grab one of these communion trays, three each. 
Just follow my instructions. Yeah. Grab, grab a communion tray each and uh, take the top off because you're going you're gonna to serve people. And uh, Seth, I want you to stand right here in this gap over here. Cleo, I want you to stand right here. And Mark, I want you to stand right here. Okay? And I want, I want everybody, just no, a little bit forward, a little forward, because people are going to walk past you. Uh, I want to do communion a little different this morning. And uh, I won't force anybody to do this, but if you say, you know what, I, I want to ma- make a commitment. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember that suffering and that death and that resurrection that he encouraged his disciples with this. He was telling them what discipleship really looked like. And so if you say, yeah, pastor, I want to I wanna partake of this. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want you to come down. Just go and grab a communion thing, and let's all join down here at the altars. If you just want to begin to move right now, just grab a communion on your way down, and then come down close and make room for everybody. Welcome to our online family and friends. You guys just make your own communion, I guess. See, that's the, that's the joy of being able to worship together as we get to do things like this together. Yeah. So everybody grab and you can begin to open. Can I tell you, just as, you, as we're getting situated, I actually had three more things that I wanted to share, but what we want to do is we want to, we were in a, oh, I need one too. Brother Kaleo, thank you. This is, a, this is a significant act, you understand. Don't ever let this become religious repetition for you. Everything that I've been talking about today, our life today and our life for all eternity hinges on what Jesus did on the cross. And the fact that he suffered, that he died, and he was resurrected. I tell you, church, It's the greatest privilege that we get to be invited into his life. We get to be invited into his life. What he asks us for is our life. And what I want you to consider is that the very same way the body of Jesus was broken, he's asking us, would you bend your will? Would you bend your flesh to me? When we receive this juice in a moment, he's saying, Were you willing to lay down your life for me? I laid down my life for you. Will you give your life for me? He made it possible through the shedding of his blood. The last thing he asks us to do is to follow him. And that's not going to happen through communion. It's going to happen as we begin to live our lives day by day. I want you to take this bread and hold it in your hand. This represents the body of Jesus that was given for you and I. Each and every one of us, he allowed his physical, a real body to be broken. He did that for us so that we could live a life that is evidence of his sacrifice life. The healing we receive, the blessing we receive, the life that we live, everything was made possible through his sacrifice. I should have taken break this bread right in half, just as Jesus' body was broken. 
And let's ask the Lord's hand on it. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you. We thank you. You didn't have to do this, but you did. You looked at us. You loved us. And you said, I'll give my life for them. Lord, we just say today that even as you gave your life, we'll give ours. We'll bend our will to yours, Lord. We'll give, we'll submit, we'll yield our lives to be a disciple of yours, Jesus Christ. We ask you to bless this bread as we do this, as we take this in remembrance of your incredible sacrifice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may take the bread. This juice represents the blood of a new covenant. Jesus didn't give a halfway sacrifice. He gave it all. He laid down his life. He shed his blood. He died so that we could be forgiven. We could be redeemed. What he's asking us, will you follow me? Will you take up your cross? I praise God we don't live in the days of Rome. We don't have to become one-way missionaries, but the same question still stands. If he asked of great sacrifice of us, would we be willing to do so? Today I say yes. Prayerfully, every one of you within the sound of my voice, you will also say yes, Jesus. Whatever you ask me, I'll take up my cross. This life may not be easy, but if I lose my life for your sake, I will find it. Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood, the new covenant, and the invitation to be your disciples. Lord, we just say we receive the invitation. And everything that's embodied in in this cup, the washing away of our sins, the cleansing and renewing of our lives, the hope of a future and a life that we live with you, Jesus. We ask you to bless this as we receive this cup in remembrance of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take the cup. Here's what we're going to do. Follow Jesus this week. (laughs) It's really, Jesus, what's your assignment for today? What have you got for me this week? Amen. Let me pray a blessing on you. I know I'm I'm past our time, but let me pray for you, bless you, and then we'll go. I see our ushers are coming around. That's fine, but but just just pause a moment and let me let me just bless you as we close out. Amen. Lord, I just thank you for your for your hand on our lives. That we get to be a disciple of yours and we get to make disciples. And I just pray that you would speak to us, Lord, as some maybe are renewing commitments or we're making it fresh in our heart and our mind. We want to follow you, and we're going to follow you this week, Jesus. Bless us as we move out from this place today. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.